This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. My name's Rob Snowy, and I'm a fly fishing guide. I live just south of Washington, D.C. in northern Virginia. I started this podcast about 10 years ago to help educate others about fly fishing. This is episode 201. It's brought to you by Filson. You can visit them at filson.com. This episode features Alex Binstead. He works at Fletcher's Boathouse. It's located at Fletcher's Cove on the Potomac, just outside of Georgetown. The Washington Post calls Fletcher's Cove the greatest fishing hole in America, and it's located within 10 minutes of the White House. Alex is not going to give us all of his secrets. That's like asking a barbecue pit master for the secret ingredients in their sauce or dry rub. You never hear Guy Fieri getting any secrets to a dry rub of what goes in there. They'll say some garlic, some paprika, some onion powder. He's not going to give you any specific logs, rocks, or eddies that he fishes, but take note of what he says. Alex and I have been out of work for the past week because we got a huge rainstorm. In the last podcast, I mentioned Jason was coming to town. Jason, Thomas, and I got out over last weekend. Thomas and I each got a snakehead, several carp, and Jason got into some carp and landed a big fatty. And it was a fantastic weekend. As I mentioned before, this 
podcast episode is brought to you by Filson. Filson was established in 1897. It is the leading outfitter and manufacturer of unfailing goods for outdoor enthusiasts. Their clothing and gear is built upon a reputation for reliability. They're a favorite among anglers and hunters, engineers and explorers, mariners and miners, and anyone who refuses to stay indoors. I will be doing a live podcast from their reopening of their new location on 14th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. I will have more information about the opening and the live podcast I will be doing on my social media and the next several podcasts. So stay tuned. This is Alex Binstead, binsteadlures.com. I hope you all enjoy this episode. All right, this episode we have Alex. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Alex Binstead. I am the manager at Fletcher's Boathouse in D.C. For those that can't see you right now, is there a celebrity doppelganger you have that people could picture you as? People ever say you look like somebody? No, <laughs> other than Harry Potter, but that was that was years ago. Yeah, if you had the round glasses, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's talk about you first. We we'll go to Fletcher's Cove and then friends of Fletcher's Cove. You're probably one of the more, I want to say, knowledgeable people about this river. Share some of what you know about your fishing spot, your office, I guess we could call it, at Fletcher's. So where did you grow up? I see you got DC plates on your car. Yeah, I grew up. Very close to Fletcher's. It was about a 10-minute walk from my first childhood house. And then my dad, being my dad, moved us even closer to Fletcher's to the point where if I ran, I could be there and back in under five minutes. Oh, my goodness. So pretty close. Yeah. Where'd you, what high school did you go to? Uh, I went to Wilson. Okay. Um, and then I still still live in the neighborhood now. Nice. Um, Short commute. Yeah, about a mile away. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, which is the farthest I've ever lived, <laughs> other than my college years. But Wow, where'd you go to undergrad? Uh, I went to Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. It's a okay. design school. Very cool. All right. When did you get into fishing? I imagine living that close to the river. Your dad's an angler. Did you get it all from him? Yeah, my dad worked at Fletcher's when he was a kid and fished there when he was a kid and started me very young. Uh, we would <laughs> He would have us practice casting not fly rods at the time, but spinning tackle in our backyards. And I know, you know, it would save him headaches later on getting tangles out on the river, but it was yeah. probably really to have us not embarrass him when we were out fishing. Cause my brothers and I were the best casters for our age. Um, cause we spent the winters in the backyard practice casting. How many siblings? Uh, two younger brothers. So he basically got you guys to row for him. I'm assuming he, the rowing... he trained you to row boats. No, funny, funny enough, no. We did spend some time, time on the oars, but it was a lot of shad fishing or walking the canal, so there wasn't a heck of a lot of rowing going on. Other than your dad, any big influences in fishing? Uh, locally, yeah. Uh, Mike Bailey, also known as Animal. I fished with him starting in high school. I remember going out, and that's when I learned how to row because uh, he would bark commands at me to when we were striper fishing. Right. Um, did you work out with Jim range? Uh, I did. Uh, that was back in the bait fishing days when we were using herring to catch stripers. Uh, he had um, offered to take me out and he said, you got to get up at four in the morning or meet me at four yeah. in the morning. And that was almost 20 years ago. I was yeah. like, I don't know, man. Yeah. And now I'm looking back on it. Just pissed that I didn't go out with him. 
Yeah, that was, I don't know that I ever fished in his boat, but I was definitely in boats next to him. Uh, we used to, you had to get up at four in the morning, you had to catch bait. And we had a, you know, we had to catch herring first, which you had to start early. Then you had to row up to the hole and yeah, you just sit there all morning and there's a big class of rockfish in the mid 2000s. You want to get into that later? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I should make a note. So you basically grown up at Fletcher's and I've also been told you build some of those boats. I don't. We, we restore them every winter. Okay. Um, so it's for some of those in the age that they are, it's basically building, them. uh, you're stripping paint and fiberglass and a lot of woodwork on them. I've never built one from scratch. Right. Why were the aluminum boats not used that I, I bought from you guys and that was hit by a drunk driver about 10 yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, drift boats, that was a snafu with the park service. Someone higher up thought it'd be a good idea to get them. And there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen as it were down there. We operate Fletcher's under contract for the park service and there's a, you know, I get a paycheck from a big parent company, but anyway, there's a lot going on. And so sometimes when somebody higher up has a good idea or what they think is a good idea, we follow through and. So one day we had four aluminum drift boats and drift boats are meant for going downstream. Right. And I need to get my boats back at the end of the day. So you also said before that people will ditch boats below the cove. Yeah. That's a, how do you get their credit card back? Uh, we just, I mean, you know, I'm not going to hold their ID or credit card hostage. I never could really do that. Not the authority. I have a few bad Yelp reviews from my <laughs> from my conduct after having to get the boats back. All right. So you started off live lining, lure fishing, and when did you start fly fishing? Fly fishing, we started. It was for carp on on mulberries. So that would be after the shad season when the mulberries started coming out. This was when the Cno Canal had water in it. And there was a mulberry tree right at Fletcher's and I had been fly tying for years, but that was a good, you know, it was a good problem trying to figure out a mulberry fly. Right. Um, and that was, spent a lot of time doing that. Um, what'd you come up with? What's uh, the final, is it still a final product? Or still oh, the fi- I do have a final one. Finally, it's, <laughs> I've never told anybody how I do it yet. Okay. No worries there. <laughs> but I mean, we used to, you know, deer hair flies and. We used to crush up mulberries to get the scent and put flies in a cup of crushed mulberries. And still, you know, you weren't, carp are pretty smart fish. So you had to, it took a while to really get it dialed in. But that was definitely my first um, experiences fly fishing. We're trying to outsmart carp. And you're fishing now. What's, what's the ratio of fly Fly to spin? spin? It's, it's still mostly spin. Um, it's definitely an advantage down at Fletcher's. Yes, that waterway is is critical, you know, for spin and tackle for a lot of species and times of year. Uh, so there are certain situations where fly rods do quite well. The shad run being one, um, schooly striped bass when it's low flow and low wind. Uh, carp fishing is great, and there's some top water opportunity later in the year. But you just have to pick and choose. You don't want to. I don't want to handicap myself on one specific thing. Right. I want to catch fish and I may fish often, but I, in the grand scheme of things, there are plenty of people that fish more than me. 
so, you know, if I go out, it may be every day, but it's one to four hours, really never more than that. So I don't have a whole lot of time to get dialed in and it's hard to get dialed. Like for the striper fishing, for instance, you have to start your morning trying to find fish. Once you find them, you're good. Um, you can probably get a fly down to them, but you know, I don't have all day. <laughs> right. Which is one reason I have to spin fish as much as I do. Okay. Well, let's talk about Fletcher. So why is Fletcher's such an amazing spot? Is it the geography, the underwater topography, the flow? Uh, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, the fall line, which is Little Falls, which is about a mile and a quarter upstream from Fletcher's, is the natural stopping point for... 99% of these spring run fish. So perch, hickory shad, American shad, and striped bass, they're going to be stopping there. It's a natural stopping point. Um, so they get stacked in there pretty good to do their spawn or for striped bass to, to feed. And Fletcher's just happens to be the point where the flow, the speed of the current is, is ideal for targeting these fish. And, you know, a lot of people come down there and, they rent a boat or go up the shore and they want to hike up and down the river because they think the best spots are going to be far away or somewhere where people aren't. But I always tell them Fletcher's was built there for a reason. Right. <laughs> and that's because there's fish right there. There's no need to, no need to overthink it. 90. And I, I don't know whether this is really cool or really pathetic, but I'm comfortable saying that 90 percent of the fish I've ever caught have been within sight of the Fletcher's dock within a quarter mile from Fletcher's. So I don't know what, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> if you're catching fish, that's all that matters. Who were the Fletcher's? I met, was it Bob? You would have met Joe and Ray. Joe. I think he's the one, one of them sold me my boat that or, was, or helped broker it. Yeah. That was likely Ray. Okay. Uh, so the Fletcher's have had some hand in, in the boathouse there from sometime in the mid 1800s to 2005 when they, Joe and Ray were the brothers running it in 2005 and they decided they didn't want it anymore. Their kids didn't want to take it over. And so that's when it became the park services to contract out. Ray came back on board with the new company in 2005 and worked for several years before he retired. But they still have, you know, I worked with the Fletchers and Dan Ward, who works at the boathouse, still at work with the Fletchers. So we still have a lot of ties to them and they come down and visit from time to time. And their family's always just been running a fishing operation out of that spot? Yeah. Uh, a lot of, you know, primarily fishing. Um, canoes were a huge, hugely popular thing prior to the kayak craze. So they did, they had a lot of hand in that and also bicycles. All right. Historically, it was just in their family. They just decided to build a shack there and yeah that was pre pre-national park service back when they it was a different time back then i guess you could just pick your plot on <laughs> right pick, i wish i was i wish it was like back then uh you could just pick a plot on the river and and do your thing so you know there's probably no brick and mortar thing for a while but i imagine just a couple boats and a couple guys letting there, people out there's also some historical structures around there there's like an old chimney yeah. Uh, so prior to any of the the Fletchers, there's that house there. When you come down the driveway, is the Abner Cloud House, which was completed, I believe, in 1803. But that was that was the house for 
a family that operated a mill there, grain, grain mill, I believe. Okay. And that predates the canal. And then the canal was built and there was various structures and things along the canal. And then over the years, just, you know, random, there was an old Boy Scout camp up about a half mile up in the woods there. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of history around. And it's a notorious floodplain. Mm-hmm. So I imagine all that stuff has gone through yeah. some underwater stages. Yeah. Um, Especially this week. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of those, yeah, there's not much left in the, in the floodplain there. Fletcher's is just high enough where this week's flood didn't do anything to us, to the, to the buildings, but we've had since 1975. Agnes. Agnes, the two in 96. And there's one in 85, so maybe just four, four floods that have come into the building there. Um, And then that building was built in the 70s, so then the other building on site was 1930s. And that, when you had a lot of floods back then, if you look at the historic crest, it's kind of, I think they had two in the 30s that were just bigger than anything we've seen in our lifetime, so. That Agnes, I want to have some of the old timers on TPFR post some stories about that, that have been here that long. I grew up hearing about Agnes and it was mm-hmm. just a disaster. Like yeah. everything was blown out. Yeah. I just, I just watched something on PBS about the Conowingo dam and Agnes. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> Look that up. <laughs> All right. So where exactly is, if you're going to throw a dart for people that are, are listening who aren't familiar with the chain bridge to Georgetown mm-hmm. area, where would you say Fletcher's is located geographically? Uh, I always describe it as one mile below Chain Bridge and two miles above Key Bridge on the river, of course, right off of Canal Road. So really, I mean, if you were by water, you would, you'd be in Georgetown and then you go up a mile and you're, you're in the Fletcher's Cove area. So it's, there's a lot of changes. It, it changes rapidly. Um, and it's pretty much from city to city to nothing. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing else out there. It's just Fletcher's in my house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the neighborhood, the neighborhood in DC is Palisades and that's a quiet neighborhood with no Metro access. So it's, yeah, there's not much. It's much pretty quiet. There. And the, the wildlife, I mean, you don't be surprised for deer and Turkey and yeah, we see turkeys quite often deer, um, in the spring, eagles, osprey, yeah. all sorts of stuff. It's you and you're, it's the Mather Gorge. So the other the other side's a canyon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still really understand that how much of a drop off it is through there. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what makes some of that that water so interesting to fish too, because you do have that drop off coming from the Virginia side, and then the Palisade from the DC side, and then really as you get down to Georgetown, it completely levels out and becomes the swamp that DC was built on. Right, it's pretty deep above Georgetown, right? Like 180 feet in spots. Well, about 180, but definitely there's 100 plus yeah. um, by Key Bridge and down by the Kennedy Center. And then Fletcher's, you're looking at right out front, 12 to, to 18. Okay. And then there's plenty of 25 to 30 and deeper than that. If you you want. know where all those deep holes are. Yeah. And I avoid them because I don't like catfish. <laughs> catfish are down there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot, of the, a lot of the striper fishing is... At least when they're feeding, maybe they hold or suspend in that deep water, but they, when they're feeding, they're in that relatively shallow 12 to 18 feet. So, you know, what species you're going after, you know, what spot to fish, like be it a smallmouth, a walleye, a yes. striper. Yeah. I know what a lot of times, 
you know, shad fishing, you're clearly targeting shad. When I'm fishing for stripers, it's very common to get bycatch of walleye. June, which is quickly approaching here, is actually my favorite month to fish. And you get a mix of all species. And you're kind of just out there fishing because <laughs> you really never know. Right. That's one of the great I things about it. I consider that with the Potomac. You really never know what you have until yeah. you land it. Yeah. It's... Yeah, you we really, really don't. Sight casting a carp the other day, and we picked up a snakehead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, never know. that was tidal basin. Yeah. All right, so some characteristics about. You already mentioned there's deeper spots. There's a certain flow. Um, how does the actual cove make that stretch of river different? I mean, why did they specifically build Fletcher's there? Well, the cove allowed a protected area for a dock and a you know and a business operation. Um, so I imagine that was a lot of it from a fishing standpoint. It provides quick safe haven for high water events. Like the one we just had any fish that was out in the channel can quickly duck into the cove. It's Creek fed there. So there's a cooler water source. We get all sorts of different species that come up, um, and hang out in the cove itself, likely because of, temperature change or or other reasons or because that's where the beta you know the, the minnows come up there and the when it gets sunny yeah it can't hurt the fishing <laughs> that's for sure and then they can also just take a huge break up there catch their breath before they go up to little falls yeah uh so there's i mean there's various coves along the way and they all are are pretty good hot spots to fish whether you're fishing in the protected eddy itself or out in the current they're often in that general area because that's where bait could be holding or that's where the bigger fish want to rest or we notice a lot that boats will line up mm-hmm. is that right where there's a drop off uh the boats line up that's primarily shad fishing and they're lining up on what we call the seam or it's really the edge of the current where the the current meets the slack water of the eddy which is it's just a visual clue as to where the shad like it's that mix between not enough current and too much current. Um, and it gives them the chance if, you know, if they're resting in the slack water, you have access to casting in the slack water. If they're down deep in the current, you know, from that spot where you're anchored, you can fish. Um, and speaking of anchor, you use what I believe are referred to as Arkansas anchors. <laughs> Never heard that term, but <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> and then there's Arkansas anchors. There's Alabama Samsonite, which is a trash bag. Your clothes. There's a Canadian tuxedo, which is denim on denim. Things have different terms. Um, so you guys just use river rocks tied to a rope. We use river rocks tied to a rope. The craggy bottom there, you lose a lot of anchors. Um, so if you have a private boat and you come up with a thirty, forty dollar anchor, be prepared to to lose it. Were you paying attention to the news last week when the senator said that? sea level rising is because rocks are going into the water so you guys are contributing to the sea yeah. level rise every time you have to cut an anchor off. it is funny the tides are tides are now higher because of siltation which is weird to think yeah <laughs> but it's true when did you start noticing that uh so we had this we have this concrete the dock was always for years in texas concrete um walkway and that was fixed <laughs> in the ground it wasn't moving and as the years went on, the tide just kept going higher and higher over it. So I think as you get silt that washes down, it displaces the tide. And okay. so the water has 
it has to come up over it. Right. And so we had to build a new walkway on top of it. Right. We'll get to that with the, the next, the third part. Let's see what else. Have. And then who named all those rocks? For a while, there was the shadfishing.com and the yeah. Google map. Yep. Uh, so the rocks, each rock at Fletcher's, or almost each rock, has a name and a, and a story behind it. And a lot of them predate me and any living person today. Um, so we found an article, I believe it was from 1909, in, the, in one of the Washington newspapers back when they actually wrote about outdoor and fishing activities. But they had a map of the Fletcher's area, and a lot of these rocks were, were the same names, same spots really? that we're fishing today. And then I have a book from the 50, I think 1957, that was the same, you know, verified some of the similar spots that we fish with some of the same names. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Where'd you find a book that had that? Uh, it was a gift from one of the Fletchers. Okay. Called Fishing the Potomac. And it was something about that. Bitty bitty one. Little pamphlet. Yeah. Little pamphlet, but it had a little thing on Fletchers and, and just a little map, <laughs> a crude map that was not the scale, but it, it had spots that I know I fish today like the parlor and something that they called the bass hole. But I know I've caught a lot of bass and what was known as a bass hole. They have a picture of uh, Julius Fletcher, Ray and Joe's dad holding a stringer of small mouth. I mean, these are all 19 inch plus fish. Wow. I mean, just massive stringer of small mouth. And um, you get those on tubes. Tubes. So we get them on flies and jigs and, but he caught these in the spot, in the same spot <laughs> that I fished today. So it's kind of, Kind of neat. Uh, so the shoreline, it's not, it's not easy to walk on down there. No, I prefer to fish from a boat than shore. Yeah, uh, I mean the shoreline is it can be great for shad fishing. There's plenty of spots to to get a line out to the current for shad, but for any of your striped bass, for your smallmouth, any of that stuff, it helps to cover ground because even if you have an idea where these fish are, they might not be there on that particular, on that particular tide or, or day or whatever. Um, so you do have to, you do have to move around a, bit, a lot and that's when a boat comes in handy. I'm also worried with all those log jams from the flood. So there's just gonna be some huge snake in there. that's going to bite me that they're going to blend in. Yeah. Seen fair share of copperheads. Yeah. I, just, <laughs> I don't like when I walk down to the bottom of the cove, I'm always yeah. stepping and kicking things and then waiting a couple seconds and then taking another step. Yeah. You're more cautious than I am. I should take a, take a note. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see what else. So what other species are in there? You mentioned shad stripers, smallmouth. Uh, well, we have our anadromous species that come up in the spring. So that's hickory shad, American shad, herring, striped bass, which come from the ocean. And there are resident striped bass that come up from the lower Potomac in the Bay. And white perch. For our resident fish, we have the invasive blue catfish, channel catfish, smallmouth bass, uh, largemouth bass. It's probably a 90 to 10 split in majority of smallmouth over largemouth right now. There's gar that come up from downriver to spawn um, this time of year. Anyone catch something down there that no one was expecting? Like a brown trout or a brook trout? Yeah, I think that there was one rainbow trout caught this year. Um, we see a muskie every few years. 
No one's caught a sturgeon. There's been stories of sturgeon right. um, from some of the, the old timers. Paula has a story of three Hispanic guys on the Virginia shoreline carrying a sturgeon out on their shoulders together. Wow. Do you want to talk about Paula now? <laughs> it's always, a, it's never a bad time to talk about Paula. So she worked the dock. Yeah. So she, worked, she quote unquote worked. She predates me, but, um, one day she just, from my understanding, just showed up at Fletcher's and asked for a job. And they had their doubts that this tiny lady could handle the, this, the stress of working the dock. And she proved everybody wrong. She ran that dock for years by herself. And I mean, she would outwork teenagers and, you know, she, she would do the work of two or three teenagers. Wow. And the last time I saw her, I bumped into her on M street in Georgetown and she had, she didn't know who I was. Yeah. And I was like, I just want to get a picture with you. She's like, all right. She <laughs> puts her backpack down and takes out deer antlers. <laughs> And puts it next to my head while my wife takes a picture. And then we keep walking. And my wife's like, what the F was that? <laughs> That's Paula. Yeah, you didn't hear any profanity <laughs> out of her, which was bizarre. Yeah. And then she found the guns. Yeah. You want to tell that story? <laughs> I don't know if I should or not. Um, let's never stop me. Um, yeah, a couple couple winters ago. It was right before the Trump elect. It was uh, right before the... Right, yeah. Exactly. I happened to be passing by Fletcher's. We were closed. So I wasn't working there at the time, but I saw there were news, you know, there's a news crew up there on the canal bridge and I lingered just long enough to hear them say something about guns. And I said, oh, crap. Cause it's never, you know, whenever there's any story, they're always going to say Fletcher's boathouse, dead body gun. You know, they're going to have all these keywords that do not bode well for, for that business. <laughs> um, so I, I paid some extra attention to that one. And everybody joked later that whenever I told anybody in my company, they always told me that they found my guns. Um, and so I had to reassure them that they didn't find mine. But anyway, the, the news story, it, all that they said was that a woman found, found a gun in a violin case at Fletcher's. And they didn't say what woman, but I had a very funny feeling I knew what woman it was. <laughs> it wasn't just gun. It was a bucket of guns. Yeah. Like a bucket too. Yep. Yep. And no one's ever figured out what the deal was. If they, if they did, they're not telling us. Yeah. So. Weird. Yeah. She found, yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, so we mentioned fish species. You don't like the blue cats. Uh, what about gizzards? Don't like gizzards. I didn't mention them at all. That's how, how yeah. much I don't like them. So gizzard shad are a freshwater resident fish, unlike their saltwater cousins. They're really a trash fish. They're gizzard shad, mud shad, winter shad. Would kind of all they're all share the same name, but they don't typically take a lure in the mouth. Um, so you snag them by accident a lot and they'll just kind of stack in close to the shoreline. So you, you do snag, stack, snag them a lot as you retrieve. And perhaps the, the main issue with them is people mistake them for hickory or American shad. So you get people that come back and, Oh man, I had a great day and caught 20, blah, blah, blah. And then they Show you a picture of a gizzard chat. And, Are they you know, touching it? No, they're touching it. Yeah. yeah, they stink. 
yeah, I, I try. I'll touch most fish. I touch plenty of blue catfish, but gizzard shad, I take the pliers and just shake them off the hook no matter where they're hooked. Now there's uh, there's some flatheads making their way upriver. Yeah. Um, I caught a flathead the day before this river came up. Um, it's about eight pounds. Wow. They're cool. They're cool fish. I know they're invasive too, but. Did you bonk it over the head? I didn't. <laughs> Unlike blue cats, flatheads, they fight better and they don't slime your line. If you've ever had the displeasure of catching a blue catfish, yeah. you'll know you have to clean up after it five minutes after you land it. Um, so the, the flatheads, they actually, they fight quite well. It keeps you, I haven't caught enough of them. So when it, when that fish bit my jig, I had no idea what I had for a while. So at least, you know, a blue cat, they bite and you kind of know instantly by their, by the way they fight. But yeah. I, I'd welcome more flatheads. I know they'll eat everything, but <laughs> I'd rather have flatheads than blue cats. So let's talk about uh, what we're going to use to catch specific fish. So if someone's got to come down there with a fly rod, you want to break down what would be needed to get into fish, what flies, lines. Yeah. So f- fly fishing, if you're going to start fly fishing at Fletcher's, that would probably mean you're going to shad fish. It's the most accessible fish we have with fly tackle. So you're looking at anywhere between six to an eight weight, ideally, um, a sinking line that's critical. Floating lines will not do it with that amount of current. I know there's some places you could shad fish with a floating line, but not in the Potomac. And then shad flies are just, anybody can tie them. They're super easy. You've got your own pattern. Got my own pattern, but it's not that all that different from everybody else's pattern. Um, it just has to be small and, and bright and have some weight on it and yeah and then you cheat off of everybody else fishing around you and you'll catch fish just ask what was that bitten on what color yeah it's you know it's a lot you don't even have to ask questions you have to a lot of fishing and you know is is for not just fletchers but observation of what's going on around you people go out there and they're they have they don't watch everybody else but you have to keep an eye on Cause if someone's catching fish 300 yards downstream from you, you should probably, and you're not, you should probably move down there. Right. What about, uh, if you're targeting other species from the boat with the fly rod, mm-hmm. clousers pretty yeah. standard. Uh, yeah. Clousers pretty standard. A lot of these fish, uh, your striped bass, your small mouth and your walleye and the Fletcher stretch are going to be hugging the bottom. There's not, many opportunities for suspended fish that aren't shad. Um, Are they down there just because the current is so fast or is it the structure that they want to hang out? They're definitely hiding, you know, they're, they're down there and they're definitely, there's probably some current breaks behind boulders and rocks that we can't see down on the bottom of the river. That's probably where the bait is. Um, But for whatever reason, over the years, you just don't catch, you might pick up one or two, but you're, Generally, you're not catching these fish unless you're unless you're touching bottom with something, which makes fly fishing there a challenge with the speed of the current, the depth of the river. It's hard to get a fly down um, and stay in the strike zone for a long enough time. But when you do, it can work quite well. You just have to pick and choose your your um, your time on that. So, like last June, we had a great schoolie bite, and the river was down at three and a half feet on the little falls gauge 
no wind to put a belly in your line, none of that. And we anchored up and we were doubled up on, on schoolie stripers all morning long. And, you know, that part of your job is going out to fish. Because you have to know what they're biting on and where. I tell my I tell, I tell myself that. Yeah. That's how I justify fishing. It's like a chef that has to taste yeah. their food. Yeah. Um, yes, it is very important to be able to point people in the right direction. That's that's a very rewarding part of the job is when somebody comes back and they've caught fish off your advice. So, do you have an FAQ where someone asks the same question? You're just like, look at the, look at the sign. <laughs> I, sh- I probably should. I just. For the really common ones, the whole staff answers at the same time, and it's got to be somewhat embarrassing for the person asking the question. But My neighbor, Don, next door, he's got this contraption on his roof. It's made of beer cans duct tape together, and somehow it absorbs the solar energy and heats his house. And it looks like a coffin on his roof. Everybody that walks by with their dog, every guest on our backyard, I have to explain. Yeah. I said, Don, just put up a sign, and I can just point. I probably did it six times over this last weekend. Explained what it was. Like the mailwoman yesterday is like, what is that on the roof, by the way? <laughs> I'm going to look at that. Yeah, you need FAQ. We need one for the title basin. We were going to put yeah. it all in shirts. <laughs> like just all the questions. You can just say, look at my back. <laughs> so what about lures? I really don't know too much about lures. I know there's the pumpkin things you use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, I mean, at, at Fletcher's for the bulk of the time, if we're not targeting Chad, we are using bucktail jigs in a variety of sizes from an ounce and a half in weight. That's up to eight inches long. And that's for your big stripers in the springtime. You need that heavy weight to, to contend with springtime current and get it down to the bottom. That's your quillback jig? That's my quillback jig. How long did it take to develop that? Uh, so those... There was a guy, there was an old timer called Dickie Tehan, who used to fish exclusively jigs, only jigs for every fish in the river. He had eighth ounce, inch long bluegill jigs up to eight inch striper jigs. Um, and that's all. He even used jigs for shad. <laughs> um, and so, and he was my neighbor growing up, or one of my neighbors. But so he's like the original guy that used to use jigs and it's it's a very a bucktail jig is a timeless fishing lure my jig was kind of honed in over the years when they when herring became banned and we couldn't use it anymore for bait and was that because um, the numbers were low that was because the numbers were low and so we were forced to to change our tactics and honestly i'm having a lot more fun now that we can't use bait it's you know people come up and they complain about not keeping herring but Honestly, you catch more fish on, if you know what you're doing anyway, you catch way more fish on artificials. And you're um, tying all these onto that old regal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that thing won't die. That's the best vice yeah. around. One of the other old timers at the boathouse gave me that, and I've been using it for years. But yeah, some of my early attempts at jigs were, I still have a couple that turn up from time to time in random tackle boxes from customers, but they, you know, it's just one of those design, it's a design process. Um, and that's what I went to school for, not necessarily for fishing lures, but <laughs> you know, you just hone it down and make it, make it work. And now we're at its final, it's a kind of a constant evolution, but that's what makes it fun. Yeah. And so you, you're always trying to stay on top of the fish and what they want. Very cool. Any other colors for different times of season? Uh, wise? White 
white is your easiest. Um, looks like perch. Looks like perch. Looks like herring. Put a little flash in there. A little bit of red flash. And that's been that's been the go-to for stripers is white. Uh, we did in the last couple of years started tying darker color jigs. Um, these fish will, when the herring aren't in, they'll sometimes eat smelt. And that's and that goes for even even mid season. Sometimes the herring just there'll be a lull, so they'll be eating something else. Or the smaller fish don't want to go through the effort of eating a whole herring, so they'll eat a smaller bait, you know, smelt or other bait fish. And that's also the case in June when the schoolies are around. Not as much herring, so you gotta downsize your bait and match the hatch, as it were. Um, so smaller brown gold jigs, and that's something we really just figured out in the last couple of years. What kind of rod are you using to throw those? Really relatively light tackle. So for three quarters of an ounce up to an ounce and a half, we're using six foot or even a few inches shorter medium action rods with size 2,500 Shimano reels on them with only 10 pound braid. And the reason for all of that, that's one of those things, just like the jig got kind of honed down and narrowed in, the tackle had to do the same. You have to, you know, it's critical, as we've stated, critical to be on, to be able to hit bottom. That's where the fish are. So this light tackle allows you to get to the bottom and feel it. And just sit there and just bob it up and down? Yeah. Well, that's the... That's what jigging is? That's what jigging is, except there's a lot of nuances to it. Um, you have to you have to bounce bottom, but if you don't feel bottom, if if you get your jig to the bottom and you don't feel it, you're snagged and you're, you lost a $10 jig. And then you're, you're not fishing when you're tying new jigs on. So it's, and I mean, that's the difference between 10 pound braided line on your spinning reel and 20 pound braided line. The 20 pound braided line is going to have less sensitivity. It's thicker. So it's, it's not going to sink as well. The sink rate's not going to be as, you're not going to get that same defined tap of the jig on the bottom. So it really, there's minute details that are critical in this application. Okay. What about bait? You can't use herring anymore. Yeah. I, I know that for catfish, it's gizzard shad. Yeah, catfish. Livers. I don't really do much bait fishing anymore, but catfish, just getting anything down to the bottom. For smallmouth and walleye, if, if you went through the effort of catching smelt, shiners, whatever minnows are swimming around, or even little tiny bluegills, and got those to the bottom, that would be... That'd be very effective. All right. Or you put them under a bobber. As a kid, <laughs> we used spam for bait. Spam worked really well. That was more still water. Yeah. I had uh, not fish, people, I had not fish bait. It, people catch them on. People catch catfish on hot dogs. If I, I don't know why people even buy bait from me at Fletcher's. All you would have to do is dig up a worm and catch one bluegill and catch a catfish with the bluegill and right. I see people caught up your catfish and then you got unlimited catfish bait. Yeah. I see people go down to four mile with ultralight rods and Mm -hmm. just catch a ton of little bluegill and then Mm -hmm. throw them in their car and they drive up river. Yeah. Yeah. That's accurate. Okay. Let's see. How long is the, are you just down there when the boathouse is open or do you fish all year? Uh, I fish the only month I haven't caught a fish at Fletcher's in what would be January. At this point, so depending on your 
depending on the weather, February, things can start get going with walleye. They're going to start their spawn first. Uh, your smallmouth are going to start their kind of pre-spawn migration rituals early on. And you got, y'all have a record of first fish caught, last fish? Yeah. Yeah. So each year kind of there's always a unspoken tournament <laughs> uh, between the regulars of who's going to get the first of any any given species. Okay. Um, and so that's something that's pretty well documented over the years, um, the first fish. And then, you know, we try to keep records for the rest of the year, but it's harder. <laughs> All right. How's the river and the fishing changed? So we already mentioned the tides changed. Uh, you mentioned that the 2000s had a good run of stripers. Mm-hmm. Have you seen fluctuations in your time? Do you hear stories from your dad compared to... Yeah, so I mean, all... all it's a constantly evolving thing. The the stripers back in the eighties was at the moratorium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stripers were banned entirely in the eighties um, from being kept. Prior to that, they would fill boats and like up to the gunnels and wow, and bring them in. I mean, just you know, twelve inch to fifteen inch fish, and that was um, that's just what they did. And then and then they went on moratorium. And then because of that moratorium, that class of fish just became prolific. They, in the mid 2000s, they were our spawning fish. Michael picked that up. (laughs) They were our spawning fish um, that would come up and these fish were 20 to 50 pounds and plentiful. They were just, it was only a week or two early in the season, but (laughs) they were some quality, quality fish. What are some of your personal bests out there? Uh, stripers, probably. We rarely put tape measures to things, but 50 inches would be my personal best striper. Damn. And that was that was a mid 2000s fish. We've caught we've caught 50 inch fish in the last couple of years. I haven't personally gotten one, but I've seen a couple of caught on jigs, um, and then a lot of a lot of. Not a lot, but enough 40-inch fish. My goodness. You've pulled out some pretty big smallmouth. Mm-hmm. What's a good smallmouth for you? At this point, I really specifically target the bigger fish, um, which are going to be hugging bottom and kind of hanging out in a school, unlike your small fish that you find upriver that might just be cruising solo in that smaller, in that shallower water. But... A good smallmouth in the lower Potomac. I still, I've seen bigger than 20 inch fish. The biggest I've caught and caught a few are 19 and a half. And then, you know, when you, when you fish for them, your average, if you're in that school of big fish, your average is going to be probably 17, 17 and a half. That's a good fight. Yeah. In that deep water. All right. The shatteries, like for me, the hickories are small, medium or large. And then you either have large or huge Americans. Mm-hmm. There's some small Americans too. The little buck spawning shad are sometimes smaller than hickories. A lot of people mistake them for hickories. Really? Um, I don't think I've ever seen one or I never knew. You get American shad that are just smaller, <laughs> smaller than hickory shad. This year was one of the best years for American shad. We got a huge Americans for yeah. sure this year. Um, and not just size, just numbers wise. Everybody was catching them up and down the river. Um, when I was a kid, this is another thing that's changed. When I was a kid, I was 
granted not as good of a fisherman as I am now, but I'd catch maybe three American shad a year to the point where I remember, I don't know how old I was, but I had one hooked and it got off at the boat and I just started cursing in my, <laughs> I was under 10 years old, but just, just like screaming in my boat. Just figured out you knew the bad words. Yeah. Just like pissed. Everybody's turning around, looking at me like, why is this child yelling? <laughs> but it was a big deal to hook an American Chad back then. And then now it's not, you know, now kids are catching them. Yeah. So this year from shore, we noticed big hickories early on yeah. and pretty decent Americans all throughout, but what was it four major rainstorm events we've had? Yeah, it's so, been forces, Yeah, up and down. Last May was kind of a similar deal. But yeah, it's springtime. Yeah, we just did not get. Sometimes it's a hickory in every cast for us. Yeah, we just did not get that this year. Yeah, you, well, I'd rather have the American shad. We early season, yeah, I guess it was a little rough for hickories with high water in April this year. Whereas last year, April was low and fishable the whole month. So that's when the hickories were here. And the latest someone's caught a shad was June? Uh, Mike Alper, one of our old-timer legends, he has caught one. This is in the 70s or something. Caught one on July 4th one year. Wow. That was a different climate back that's then. A patriotic fish. Historically, the shad run has always, you know, it's been starting earlier and earlier each year. Last year was actually, it started early. I had an American Shad hooked on February 25th, and the last one of the season was that was caught was on June 11th. Okay. June 11th, and in recent memory, that's the latest anybody's gone, which is pretty damn, pretty damn late. Yeah. <laughs> Long after was. most people stopped fishing for them. Right. Some of the craziest things you've seen down there? Any just absurd things? You mentioned floaters earlier. Have you ever seen a, been down there when they're looking for bodies? Uh, when they're looking for bodies, I've never seen, never personally seen one. Um, Hopefully I don't. Yeah. But people always ask me if I've come across dead bodies and someone's marijuana growing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'd be more scared to find someone's weed patch than oh, a yeah. dead body. Yeah. Dead body's not going to hurt you. Right. <laughs> Someone protecting their weed patch will. I don't know. There's been a lot of crazy things over the years. I can't, off the top of my head, it's hard to, there's just been enough where... It need to be prompted. There are a lot of uh, <laughs> prompted by topic. Yeah, there's a lot of I want to say just morons or like, I saw a guy swimming it up at Chain Bridge took yeah. his, with the life jacket, then took it off. Yeah, I saw three guys, and I mean, it's there's idiots every every day, um, so it's easy to forget stuff. I had three guys at the crest at a ten foot river at Little Falls Gauge on Sunday. Um, go out in pelican kayaks which are your like kmart brand mm -hmm. cheapest kayaks you can buy um they must no look skirt. Like when crispy candles in uh into the wild went through the rapids on the colorado river yeah. <laughs> in a cheap kayak yeah <laughs> probably looked like that yeah and these guys had instead of life jackets on they had backpacks that they were wearing in these open cockpit kayaks and if one of it's pretty hard to swim in a backpack <laughs> yeah there's some Darwin. You guys should have Darwin awards you can hand out to people. <laughs> like, next time you're going to die. <laughs> so uh, let's finish off about Fletcher's before we get into the Cove uh, issues. What uh, what do you guys sell down there? What should people bring? What shouldn't they bring? Well, we have 
DC fishing licenses. So that's one of one of the few spots that has them. Best price of any license anywhere. Yep, ten dollars for a DC resident, thirteen for non-res. And Fletcher sells, I think, more than eighty percent of all DC licenses. Um, so good place to get that. Um, we have a good selection of spinning tackle, both bait and lures, kind of specifically for this area. Not a whole lot of fly tackle. There's enough fly shops in the area um, for that, but you know we'll have shad flies in the spring. I mean, that's the fishing aspect of it. We have, other than the rowboats that we rent, of course, um, then we have, for recreational purposes, kayaks, canoes, paddle boards, and bicycles. Yeah, hot dogs and Gatorades, too. Hot dogs, Gatorades, ice cream. Yeah. All right. Porta potties are down there. Full bathrooms. Full yeah. bathrooms now? Yeah. It's been a while since I've been down there. Okay. Anything else about the fishing that I forgot to ask you? I forgot to cover something. Well, there's always something else. Um, I mean, a lot of people forget about, you know, they come down for the springtime and just do the shad. You should, everybody should do the shad, but you should always be ready to do something else. If, you know, if you see me out there catching stripers one after another, you might want to have a striper rod in your boat just in case. Right. And then once the shad are gone, 95% of anglers are going to leave and go do something else. So you don't have to get there before dawn. You don't have to get there before dawn to get a boat. I mean, last June, June 3, 4, and 5 last year, there's like almost nobody else fishing. I had the river to myself, and I must have caught, over the course of that three-day span, 150 stripers and, you know, walleye and smallmouth and shad. And, you know, nobody's out there competing with me. So... Don't sleep on Fletcher's after the shad leave because there are other opportunities. Good to know. All right, let's talk about Friends of Fletcher's Cove. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is Friends of Fletcher's Cove and why was it formed? And Well, the Friends group is spearheading an effort to have the cove dredged over the years. The cove at Fletcher's has filled in with silt. Um, the reason this is happening is because when the metro system was being dug, all that fill dirt was dumped just upstream of the COVID Fletchers. Um, so was it because there was a road down there that could come down at night and dump it? This was a legal by the book thing. It was just a different world back then. Wow. Um, and so not knowing what changes would happen, this was, you know, they just said, okay, dump, dump your fill dirt here. And that's what happened, but it changed the hydrodynamics forever. <laughs> um, so now, previously, a big flood would come and it would scour out all the built-up sediment at Fletcher's. Um, and it was just a natural process that went on for millennia, I guess. Um, and just kept that cove clean and usable by us. Uh, after this sediment was dumped, it created, now during a flood, the water doesn't rush over that top bank the same way. Uh, we become a, the Fletcher's area becomes a giant reversing eddy that we're at the top of the eddy and it just deposits silt every high water. So this high water we had last week, there's three to six inches of fresh silt. My goodness. Um, underneath where the Fletcher's dock goes. So over the years, this builds up. 
and there's been a couple maintenance dredgings in the past. Um, and we need, we need another, another one, but it's not like it used to be. Now you have all these environmental studies and, and stuff and it costs more money. And, um, so the friends group is spearheading this effort to have, have this dredged because we, our dock is larger than it used to be, but you know, back in the day they had 50 rowboats. Now we only have 20 and we barely have half the time they're sitting on mud. So it's crippling our, you know, everybody's access to the river. Right. Is it changing the fishery? The siltation is really just, that's such a low, you know, that's such a hyper localized thing. The cove itself, when I was a kid, you could jump off the dock now and, you know, going over your head. Now you jump off the dock and you're stuck in mud. So there, there are fish that used to come up in there, you know, there's, there's decent largemouth fishing, crappy bluegills and stuff right in the immediate cove there. And that was a favorite after school activity for me was go down there and just catch bass in the creek, you know, spinners, whatever. It's super simple. Now half the time that's, you know, it's filled in with at low tide and at high tide you're relying on fish coming in there at every tide cycle. So they're just basically, there's no fish in there. <laughs> there's nowhere to, um, for them to go. Yeah. So that was, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, no, it doesn't affect what's out in the main river, which is where most people are going to be fishing anyway. But it was a very quick and easy and very accessible spot to fish for bluegills and good, good for kids, but no more. And you're getting funding through grants and we've done some fundraising events. Yeah. Fundraising grants. Uh, yeah. So they have enough, believe we have enough, um, to do the initial soil sampling, which is just to sample soils over a hundred thousand dollars. My goodness. Yeah. And that's not, you know, and then dredging it is going to be, they can't just put in like a high, those hoses they use for mining gold. They can't use that to push it all out into the river and, you have to, I mean, you have to know what you're pushing out in the river, river since the soil sampling. Right. Um, and then, and then it's someone else's problem where you dump it. So it's not like all these agreements. That's not a quick fix. Yeah. It's gonna, everyone lives downstream. Yep. So, it's, I mean, it is fascinating to see what one little, one relatively minor change can do to the whole So every system. major storm, you get a couple more inches of silt. Yeah. And... I mean, some of it works its way out. It'll compress and everything, but it, over the years, definitely. I mean, it's. I mean, you wonder why we only have a few twenty rowboats and run out of rowboats before the sun comes up every day. I can't. We literally can't have more than that because they'd be stuck on mud and nobody could use them anyway. And so you got to get down there at a high tide to get out on the boat. We'll get them all out at with twenty or you know twenty five twenty twenty five boats. We can get them all out regardless of tide. But if you had more than that, you couldn't manage. You just couldn't manage a fleet any larger than that with the tides. Okay. Where can people find out about Flint friends of Fletcher's Cove? Uh, friends of Fletcher's Cove.org. And Mike Bailey is the guy, main spokesperson for that. Um, and also he set up on that website, sent up, set up a uh, river gauge link that has every has all our gauges and all the upstream gauges on the same page that nice. you can look at very easily. So Since it's having all those tabs yeah, exactly. on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> and this time of year, I've been checking every hour. 
watching it go up and down. Yeah. It's stressful. It's like watching the, the hockey games right now. You watching tonight? I guess I have to. <laughs> where yeah, can uh, giving us some hope? Yeah, where can we find you online? You know, you've got Binstead Lures. Yep, Binstead Lures on Instagram and a website, and I post a fishing report for Fletchers on my website. And you also do work with NCCTU. Is that? Uh, I mean, I'm involved with them. Right. I, I did a talk for them a couple weeks ago, but I don't on their website. I don't have anything immediate posted. Okay. What's your outlook like for the summer? Uh, this is why it's important to keep records because when, when you get a flood like this, who knows what's going to happen after. I wish I had kept better records in 2014 the last time we had high water like this. I have a better idea what's going to happen once this settles down. But immediately, once this river becomes fishable again sometime mid-next week, there will be schoolie stripers around. There's a pretty good chance that a handful of American chat around probably not enough for people who have never done it before to come out of the house and fish for them. But I will certainly be out there trying. We'll have good walleye bite and smallmouth bite in June. Um, July, August always are going to be tough with the heat, but you could probably pick up, pick off a few smallmouth up by little falls and then not much. It'll be similar to how it is every year. All right. Anything else that I forgot to ask you The cover I think uh, that little pamphlet book, you need to write a, an updated version with all your knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to share. I always tell people I'll show them that book and then it just sits on my bookshelf. <laughs> Never show it to anybody. But yeah. No, that's a good... Someone needs to write a book. Yeah. I think you're the one. No pressure. Yeah. You seem to be the most knowledgeable one, at least that we know of. Yeah. I think all... There's definitely some people that have more knowledge for specific things, but I think all around. Yeah. That's why I wanted to have you on. I've been trying to get you on for a long time. It just never works out, but we got a flood. So we're both out of work this week. Yeah. Off season. You are where? Uh, my mind is at Fletcher's, but I, my company, one of the advantages of working in a larger company is we have other sites. So I work at a ice, at the ice skating rink downtown and drive a Zamboni all winter long. And very cool. Yeah. You get to work outside, you get to fish, you live right by the river. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Very cool. That's why I'm still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Right. And uh, people go down and check out Alex at the boathouse. Just look up Fledger's Boathouse online. Yep. Pretty simple to find. And enjoy backing in or driving in there. It was easier when I had a Miata. If you go down there, I don't know about the new car. Yeah. <laughs> Is that why you, you're not driving like a Suburban? No, I just like to go fast. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.